going to make a guess this morning, and that is this. I'm going to venture a guess that Becky and I are not the only ones here who know what it is to groan when we get up in the morning. Is that a, is that a safe, safe guess? Yeah. Well, Becky and I certainly do more than our fair share of groaning. And uh, has anybody noticed that the older you get, the, the better you get at groaning? You do more of it? Does that happen for you? Becky groans a lot, I tell you. She, I, I hear her quite often. But, uh, so why do we groan? Why does that happen? Well, we groan because it's an expression of deep inner tension created by pain or grief or sometimes simply by annoyance. Um, I'm going to share something that to me is, uh, I don't recall hearing a message on this before, but it's been a thought that's been brewing in me for quite a while and I actually tried to dismiss it a few times because I thought, hmm, I don't know if anybody wants to hear anything like that and I don't, you know, Then, but the, it was, the Lord just kept, bringing it before me. So I'm going to talk about groaning today. Did you know groaning's mentioned in the Bible? The eighth chapter of Romans is one of the places where uh, it is mentioned there are three groans, and we're going to look at these three groans today. First of all is the groaning of all creation. If you're taking notes, next is the groaning of the believer. That's you and me. And then the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three groans that are mentioned in this eighth chapter of Romans. But let me, uh, let me pray before we, before we go on. Father, I am asking today that you will give wings to my words, that you will overcome my weaknesses, and that you will allow your word to lodge deep within the hearts of your people today. So today, Lord, we honor your word and we ask that you will glorify your name in and through us for the glory of the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. Romans chapter 8. I know it's the favorite of many. It is such a glorious, glorious chapter and certainly one of the most brilliant chapters given to us by the Apostle Paul. Let me just walk through a little bit of the first part of it before I get to the meat of what I want to say. The opening verses of Romans 8 introduce the profound liberation which comes from the Holy Spirit. How many of you know are thankful for today that you have been liberated by the Holy Spirit? Verses 2 through 4 then reveal to us how the Holy Spirit liberates us, how he does that. Let me just remind you of it. And because you belong to him, this is how we are liberated. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's a great place to say hallelujah. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Well, that's how. That's how the Holy Spirit has, has given us liberty through Christ Jesus, because Christ came. Now, verses 5 through 7 tells us what the Holy Spirit gives us as he liberates us. 
as you are being liberated in Christ Jesus, here's what you receive from the Holy Spirit. Things such as, he allows you to think on things that please the Spirit. He gives you life and peace. You are now being controlled. Your life is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within. How many are thankful for it today? He gives life to your mortal body. We are now called children of God, and we are now joint heirs with Christ. That's what verses 5 through 17 tell us about what he gives us as we are being liberated. Let me just say this. I really encourage you, if it's been a while at all since you've looked at the eighth chapter of Romans, it is just, just go feast on that today. It's wonderful. It is nourishing, and it will, be, it will just refresh your soul. So go do that sometime today. As we progress on through the chapter, we see this exhilarating, uh, intensifying of hope it's what Paul's doing he's, as he brilliantly crafts this chapter, what we call our chapter for us. There's this intensifying of hope that ultimately culminates in the cry whereby we can call him Abba, Father. And so we've been liberated by the Holy Spirit through Christ. We enjoy that freedom and we all bless the Lord for that. And yet, in verses 17 and 18, that's where Paul then says, oh, he contrasts this rising, elevating hope that he, that he reminds us of and, and, and gives us the encouragement from. He contrasts that with the reality, I will say the inescapable reality of the pain of human existence. Thus, we groan. Oh, come on, give me a good groan this morning. You got a better one than that. You did a better than that when you got up this morning. Come on. We groan. Why? Because of the tension between not only this rising hope that we have because we're being liberated in Christ, but we have the reality of living on this earth and the pain of the human existence. But Paul declares that our pain, no matter how difficult it is, it is not worthy to be compared with the coming glory. So, with your permission, I want to talk about glory for just a few minutes, if that's okay. Because he says in verse 18, what I just said, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. What an incredible statement for Paul to make. And it's even more astounding when you realize it was Paul himself who gave it to us. Because when his ship was not sinking, or he was not being stoned or robbed, he was being whipped to within an inch of his life. And yet, he's the one saying to us that our present sufferings, he knew something about suffering. Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory. An amazing thought. And we know that there are believers down through the ages who've even had it worse than Paul, believe it or not. Some have known years of imprisonment and vermin-filled prisons and medieval tortures finally expired as they are drawn and quarantined. Drawn is like being eviscerated, having major organs removed from your body or quartered, literally cut into four pieces. Many believers have experienced that kind of torture and that kind of martyrdom. And yet, when you see how ugly that can be, when you see what people have actually experienced, Paul says, still, the future glory is greater than the present suffering. 
That is the simple meaning of Paul's words in verse 18. That no matter what we have gone through, no matter what we presently are going through, what we have gone through, what we're going through today, what we will go through tomorrow, the sum of it all is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Can somebody say hallelujah to that today? We can compare a thimble of water with the sea, but we cannot compare our sufferings with the coming glory. So then, what must this glory be like? Well, let me just share a couple of the ideas. Here's what Scripture tells us. We know that the universe will be transformed. Revelation 21.1 tells us the universe will be transformed. We also know that we will have bodies like Christ's glorified bodies. Philippians 3.21, I referenced that if you're taking notes. We will have bodies like Christ's glorified bodies, which is pretty thrilling, especially when we, were, we consider that even now in this body we have here today, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just imagine what it's going to be like. When C.S. Lewis preached the sermon, The Weight of Glory, in the church of uh, St. Mary the Virgin on, in Oxford on June the 8th, 1941, he gave us in that sermon about as eloquent an explanation as has ever been given. He's talking about our future glory. And here are the five main promises from Scripture that he gave that day. He says, we shall be with Christ. That will be glory. We shall be like him. That will be glory. We shall have glory. We shall be feasted, meaning we're going to chow down well, folks. We're going to eat. We, will be, we shall be feasted. And he says, and we shall have some official position in the universe. Imagine that. And in speculating on what our glorification may involve, Lewis noted that the scriptures indicate that as part of our glory, we will shine like the sun, Matthew 13, 43. And here's what C.S. Lewis concluded. He said, someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, meaning, let's think about that. When we get it as good as the flowers do and the trees who know how to clap their hands with joy, when, we, when our obedience begins to be anything like that of, of the inanimate, then they, we will put on our glory, or rather the, the, the greater glory of which is only uh, nature is only the first sketch. For you must not think that I am putting forward any heathen fancy of being absorbed into nature, he says. Nature is mortal, but we shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, guess what? You and I will still be alive when all of that's gone. Nature is only the image. It's the symbol. But it is the symbol Scripture invites me to use. We are summoned to pass in through nature, beyond her into that splendor which she fitfully reflects. Let me tell you what. Paul so understood this so wonderfully well. This hope of what our future glory is going to be was as real to Paul as meat and drink. C.S. Lewis was right also when he said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
For we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We have no idea what we're doing. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. What beautiful writing. Here's the reality of this, folks. Some of us need to have our eyes lifted from the dirt toward the heavens. There's simply no comparison of our earthly pleasure or pain with the glory yet to be revealed. Looking further into verses 18 through 27, Paul presents the hope as so substantive, so real, so dynamic that he says this, that creation groans for it. Believers groan for this future glory. And even the Holy Spirit aids believers with his own groans. So the first one I want to talk about today is the, the groan that Paul introduces as the groan of creation. Romans 8, 19 through 21. For all creation is waiting eagerly. Say waiting eagerly. Oh, come on, you got it better than that. Thank you. For that future day when God will reveal who his children are. Waiting eagerly. When God will reveal who his children really are. You see, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Wow. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. I thought the curse was... You mean creation was cursed? Paul pictures animate and inanimate creation as an audience eagerly waiting for the sons of God to come into their true glory. Now let me talk about eagerly waiting. That phrase comes from a group of words that carry the idea of craning the neck, reaching eagerly, eager, I hope this doesn't fall over, eagerly waiting, eagerly waiting. Now, if I were Randy Hurst, my friend Randy, who you know very well, I would tell you what the form of, what the grammar of this is. The form of the word that, from this phrase, it's intensive, which means it could also be translated like this, that the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Creation is craning its neck and on tiptoe to see and welcome the future glory for the sons of God. Creation longs for that day of liberation. Why? Well, we see the answer in verse 20. Because against its will, creation has a will? Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Really? Paul's referring, of course, to the curse that came upon creation when mankind sinned, the fall of man, we know that. The earth had been intensely productive up to that time. It was kind to itself and kind to its masters. It was what was referred to as a paradise. But after the fall came the curse. You know exactly what happened. You've read it in Genesis 3. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its, uh, though you will eat of its grains. 
By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So, Bethesda, whether we see it or not, have eyes to see it, whether we hear it or not and have ears to hear it, whether or not we're even aware of it, Paul says then in verse 22 of our Romans 8 text, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Why? Because it too was subject to the curse at the fall of man. Creation's groaning The earth groans like a woman in labor. It wants desperately to be delivered. And there are times, come on, let's be real about it. There are times when there appears to be no hope, no hope at all. But I'm here to say to all of us again, thank God there is hope. Because verse 20 and 21 tells us this, but with eager hope, but with eager hope, tiptoe, neck crane forward, The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Creation will one day be delivered. And the the difference between then and now is the difference between agony and ecstasy. Creation groans, oh, oh, it's dynamic, it's intense, it's real. You may not hear it, but creation today is groaning according to the word of God. And now Paul moves on to personal application. Creation groans, but he says, and guess what? We believers groan too. Christians groan too. Romans 8, 23. And we believers also groan, he says, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste, a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We groan. Oh, there's a longing. Oh, the thing we groan for is our full adoption as sons, which will be completed by the redemption of the body. Are we already God's sons and daughters? Sure we are. But we will not be complete for eternity until we get our new bodies. Paul says in a, in a parallel passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we grow weary in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. So this is echoed in in, in other Pauline uh, epistles. And he said in Romans chapter 7, he said, Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? We groan, oh, for our full adoption and the redemption of this earthly body. I got to ask the question today, who's ready for a new body? We also groan because of the misery of living in, our, living in our fallen bodies in this fallen world. A pastor from a previous uh, generation, not too long ago, Ray Stedman, says this. Our lives consist, consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. 
Many of you know what it is to groan for your adult children, maybe for your own parents. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and the lives of those we love. Oh, oh. And also we groan because we see the possibilities that are not being captured and employed all around us. Why is that? Oh. And then we groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives and we would love to see something else happening. It's recorded that as he drew near the the, uh, tomb of Lazarus, even Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages that sin had made on that believing family. You know, if you're like me today, do you not groan for the Geary family? For the pain they must be experiencing? It's just this happening to a six-year-old boy. It goes against the natural order of things. Those of you, oh, I I hope it's few or none. If if you've lost a son or a daughter, you know and only you know what that pain is really, really like. I have sat beside many who have. And, and, and it's just, it, it feels unnatural. It goes, it goes against what ought to be. And so it produces a groaning. That's the way I feel when I think of the Geary family today. But Jesus groaned even though he knew he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. So we groan in our spirits. We groan in our disappointments. We groan in our bereavement. We groan in our sorrow. We groan physically in our pain. We groan in our limitation. Oh, oh. Life consists of a great deal of groaning. But I want you to know that also we groan for, there are not always negative reasons why we groan. We groan for positive reasons. And let me tell you what the positive reason is. We groan because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Let me show you what I mean by that. In Romans 8, 23, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. We groan, though we have the Holy Spirit. We have, as a believer in Christ today, we have the first installment or the down payment of the uh, incredible, fabulous heritage that God has prepared for us. We have that within us. When Abraham's... um, servant was sent to find a bride for Isaac and met Rebekah. He gave silver and gold garments and presents to Laban, her father, as indications of, of what was to come. This is an indication. See these good things. That's, that is what God has done for us by his Holy Spirit. You and I have first fruits from the Holy Spirit. And, and what do you mean, Pastor Dan? It's that indescribable peace that we knew when we first experienced the forgiveness of our sins and the peace that passes all understanding that still continues to be with us in our lives, even in the midst of difficult and tumultuous situations. Another first fruit, the power, that power of God that calms our heart despite our circumstances and the joy unspeakable that floods our souls even when things are difficult. These are foretastes, indicators of what is yet to come. And we too as believers are described as waiting eagerly, tiptoe, neck craning forward, waiting eagerly. It's that same word that was used in verse 19. And Paul underscores this future hope we have by saying this. We were given this hope when we were saved. I love the word hope. Just think about it. I think you'll have difficulty finding any usage 
of the word hope without it pointing to the future and usually in a positive direction. Think about the word hope. Anytime you use the word, any way that you would use it, it's pointing in a positive way toward the future. And Paul says we were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. So there's something that we don't have yet. It's this hope. But if we look forward to something that we, that we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Dan, patiently, I'm not good at that. Patiently and confidently. And here again, we find that same strong word, wait for it patiently, on tiptoe, neck craning forward, and we wait with perseverance. And so we groan. We have this inconsolable longing which our greatest joys dimly foreshadow, for one day we will know the fullness of our salvation. Creation groans. We groan as believers. But even the Holy Spirit groans. And this is what triggered this message in my mind. Verse 26 and 27 tell us this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Has anybody experienced that? Raise your hand if you've experienced I just need to know if you, if you know what I'm talking about this morning. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony. Oh my goodness. He pleads for us in harmony with God's own will. You mean when I'm groaning that I'm in alignment with the will of God? If we're honest with ourselves, and I know everybody would admit this, we must admit there are times when you just don't know what to pray. I have been in so many situations when I just, God, I don't even know what to pray for here. I, Many of you who know me well or have heard me talk about this know that that the favorite thing, favorite part of my job is pastoral care. Becky and I love making hospital visits. We have missed being able to do it in this season for these last few months because we can't get in. There's an inner compulsion, an inner drive to want to go and minister to people, particularly at that time. Because so often when you walk in a hospital room, it's, it's often that we walk into a situation where maybe the news they've received is not good. They're in a terminal situation. Uh, so often, uh, not only the hospital, it, it may be a situation where a family's faced a crisis. It looks like there's no hope at all. But uh, particularly, I, I, I've noticed something that happens within me. It's not that I'm not in control of this, but it just happens. When I've been in a hospital room, particularly when I prayed for someone, you walk in and, and um, maybe they're struggling with the news they've received from the doctors. Maybe um, who knows what the difficulty is and, and the future, they, they have no idea what the future holds for them. And we pray, we minister to them at that time. There's always a, a, a vulnerability and a transparency and a, uh, an openness of the heart at that time of ministry that makes ministry just uh, so much easier and uh, something very viable at that time. And, but then I, I walk out of the room, I, I can't tell you how many dozens of times this has happened. Sometimes in the hall as I'm making my way to the elevator, something within me goes, oh God, oh God. And I know essentially what's in my heart. 
I wish I could fix it. I wish I could make the difference. I wish I could help them, but only you can. Thankful for surgeons, thankful for doctors and all the, all the medical people, but they have limits to what they can do. But oh God, you have no limit. And can I just tell you that what it comes out of this pastor's heart is a groan, oh God. And if it's not happening in the hall, I'm trying not to embarrass myself or make a scene. I get on down to the parking lot and invariably that's what comes out of me. Oh, oh, oh. And it comes out like that. God. And I, I, I know you're like Becky and I. There have been times when our children were so sick and the urgency so great that all you, could, you, you couldn't even hardly converse with the Lord. I remember when our second granddaughter was, was born this last September. She was about three months old or so, sometime during the holiday season. She developed a bronchial situation. and She was so little and so frail and so tiny. And, 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 and it, I watched her coughing, but she was just coughing. So if you, I held her close to me and I could feel the rattle in her chest and it was so pronounced and I could feel her struggling to even breathe. And if you've ever had a little one around, and you all have, you know, when a little one is sick, it's terrifying. It's, it's utterly terrifying to see that because you want so bad for it not to, you would in a heartbeat take it upon yourself if, you, if it would rid them of it. Am I telling the truth? And so you, I held her. And I just, all I could do was groan. Oh, God, oh, God, oh. Didn't even hardly, you couldn't even give words of a prayer. At best, I may have said only a few words. But I rest in this, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that cannot be expressed. And there have been times for all of us when something has been said to us that is so devastating or so hurtful with such a sucker punch and so took you off guard, you couldn't even pray. You were dealing with such a plethora of emotions, you couldn't even pray, but you can rest in this, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that, that, that words cannot express. And someday, and one day, some of we will all be probably lie in a hospital with catheters and IVs, and we will we won't even have the will to pray or the strength to pray or even be able to put two thoughts together. But I remind you that when you're in that situation, I hope you remember this: that the Spirit of God Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. It's the groaning of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that dwells within you. The Holy Spirit expresses those things that we feel, but we can't even articulate it. You talk about having a helper. Talk about understanding that he is the helper. The Holy Spirit says those things that we even want to say. But somehow in that moment, because of our human frailty and our human condition, we can't even say it, but the Lord knows our frame. Thank God. He knows our condition. You can hold that baby in your arms and just, oh, Oh, God, oh. And when we groan, and the Holy Spirit is groaning through us, you know what the Word of God tells us that we've read this morning? That that groan is in harmony. It is groaning in harmony with the very will of God. Blessed be the Lord. How wonderful. How marvelous. And oh, Bethesda, that the church would fully appreciate what we have in God. That we would fully appreciate the wealth that we have. The word indicating the Holy Spirit helps our weakness, gives us further insight into how he intercedes for us. It's A.T. Robertson who said this, 
The Holy Spirit lays hold of our weaknesses along with us. He carries his part of the burden facing us as if two men were carrying a log, one at each end. I think I know which one has the greater burden. The Holy Spirit does not just stand by. No, aren't you glad the Spirit dwells within? He's not at a distance. He's not watching you from the corner. He's not standing there like this. I hope you get by. No. He doesn't stand by to give armchair advice. He rolls up his sleeves and he helps us to bear our weakness. And that is what real help is. How wonderful, how marvelous is our Savior's love for us. Can the church say amen today? I want to just tell you this as I bring this to a close. We have two intercessors. One in heaven. Our Lord Jesus, who intercedes for, our, for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that. And we have one who's living within us today. The Holy Spirit himself who dwells within. Romans 8.23. How greatly we are loved. How greatly and lavishly we are cared for. And a glory awaits us that exceeds the wildest imaginations of even our most gifted science fiction writers. You science fiction fans, this is greater than that. You and I are gonna be creatures one day so glorious that if we even saw such ones today, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. That's the glory that awaits us. But because of the greatness of the coming glory, and yet because of our current weakness, in that tension, we groan. Oh. 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 But I want you to know this. In your groaning, you are not alone. For you are surrounded by the sympathetic groans of creation and the empathetic groans of the Holy Spirit. At church, one day, our groanings will be replaced by glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those of you who are my age or older will remember a song we used to sing years ago. When all my labors and trials are o'er and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be Glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look upon his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. Would you stand with me, church?